Hello and welcome to another episode of AdventuresIn.net. I'm Sean Claybo, your host, and with me today is Y. Lou. Hey, Y. How you doing today? Hey, good. I'm doing all right. Hey, folks. This is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. Weather around me is probably a little bit different than the weather around here. Uh, we're actually expecting up to two feet of snow within the next three days. I think the snow would really help Australia, but probably the wrong season there. How's the fires and smoke affecting you? Oh, it's it's very hard. Well, today's okay, but it's been a very hot summer, very dry summer. So, yeah, as you probably know, there's lots and lots of bushfires in Australia right now. So there's been days where... It's been very smoky, and it's very sad, actually, how big these fires are right now. So it's kind of scary as well. Um, so I, mean, I live in Canberra, um, as you know. And if you look on the map, basically from the east, west, and south, there's basically fires that are surrounding Canberra right now. So it's a little bit scary. So. Yeah, so uh, really depending on the way the wind blows, whether or not it's affecting you that day or not? Uh, I think, I think we, we should be okay. But, yeah, I mean – we we have made plans for like you know if we have to evacuate like we've we've, we've bought like bottles of water and we've all got like gas masks and you know we we'll be ready to go if anything happens. So is your house actually close to the outskirts or the bush or where it could? It it is actually close to the outskirts. Uh, apparently, my house like in particular is not on a bushfire um, prone region or something. But you know the, the embers can fly over like ten. Yeah, so. yeah, that's crazy. Mm. That's crazy. Yeah, I saw a lot of uh, international firefighters are actually being flown in to help out. So it's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's a it's good. It's good that um everyone's coming in and trying to help. But it's just the fires are just so big. It's not it's nothing we've really, really ever seen before. So. Yeah. Well, hopefully they they get some rain or something to to help out things down there. Yeah, yeah, we haven't had a lot of rain. Um, I think I'm hoping for some in the next couple of days, but we need some really big downpours, I think, for it to make any difference. Yeah, yeah, that's really sad, especially with all the animals we see on on TV. We see it every night. So. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot. I think like like hundreds of millions of animals have died. Um, I mean, people have died. You know, lots of houses have been lost, obviously. So it is very sad seeing them on TV. So. Yeah. So let's get on a little more of a happy topic, and we'll introduce our guest today. Our guest is Jonathan Thompson. Hi, Jonathan. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing, doing Sean? I'm doing great. So, you know, as, as far as I can say, you know, like say, with the snow, things like that, winter, but that's not too bad. I can, I can, I can live with it. So <laughs> why don't you okay. tell us a little bit about your, your background and development and how you got into it and and what you do these days. Yeah, so I kind of started getting into game development and development in general back in college. You know, kind of when I was going into starting college, I kind of, you know, had to figure out what I wanted to do. And I thought that game programming might be something that was interesting to me. So I ended up going to uh, California State University, Chico, and studied, they actually have a game development program there. So I studied game development and got a minor in computer science. And so, yeah, that's kind of how I started doing uh, game development stuff. Started working on some projects during college. 
And then after that, kind of started looking around for a job within the games industry, but the games industry being very competitive as it is, kind of started just working on more personal projects and just kind of going out on my own a little bit more. So um, that's kind of what I've been mostly doing lately. Yeah, you're trying to become an independent game developer until you can you know, find something that gets more experience so you can get uh, your resume a little polished up and get on with somebody. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of the idea. Just, you know, being able to build some cool and interesting projects and show off some of the, you know, unique things that I'm working on. So, yeah. So are there any um, indie games or things like that that you've released where people would um, recognize or? Probably not that anything anyone would recognize. A lot of the stuff that I've been doing has just been kind of prototyping, playing around with uh, some of the cool and unique features within the Unity game engine. Uh, which is what I primarily use and have released a few things just like on the Google Play Store. But yeah, nothing's really, nothing really popped off yet. <laughs> mm, well, it's, it's like you said, it is very competitive. So, isn't it? So, are you mainly doing mobile games or have you done um, like PC or con- even console games? Well, the really nice thing about Unity is it's pretty easy to port it to any device that you want it to. So, as far as like released games, mobile has just been the easiest platform to release things on. And then also I, I participate in game jams, which is something that we can kind of talk about a little bit later. But with those, I've, I've primarily been doing web-based games and uh, uploading WebGL games to the internet that you know pretty much anyone with a browser can play. So what type of games do you tend to you know, develop? Is it first-person shooter or you know, platform game type thing? I've kind of messed around with a little bit of everything, kind of started to dip my toes in different areas to see what kinds of things I like. I do like to make kind of puzzle type games, but I have played around with uh, making some platformers, first person shooters and things like that. Okay. So logic games. Yeah. I I tend to install quite a few logic games, things like that. I like puzzles, things like that. So yeah, a lot of interesting stuff there. So I do build most of the stuff in Unity. I'm familiar just enough to know what Unity is, but why don't you kind of give us the rundown of what Unity is and uh, what you can do with it? Yeah, so Unity is a game engine and you can build games, kind of like I mentioned, that you can, it's really easy to build games for any platform that you want, you know, whether that be uh, PC, mobile, console, anything like that. It is C-sharp, which is really nice. I, I like using C Sharp because you can just kind of, you know, import any library that you need and, you know, you can use that whole new library for your code base pretty easily. So can you basically use any of the .NET like NuGet libraries? Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't ran into any issues for anything that I needed to, you know, import. Recently, I needed to use like XML in one of my projects and was able to just include the XML library and was able to just go using that with no problem. So is it, would it be similar to something like Dameron? Because um, you're saying that it's very easy to port. So is it like you write the code in C-sharp and then you compile it to like the native code of all of those, all of the different like OSs, like Android, iOS, Switch? PS4. Yeah, yeah. So Unity pretty much takes care of all that for you. You can just kind of go into the player settings and just you know, say, this is the target platform that I want. And then once you have that target platform selected, you can kind of go into some of the settings and, and tweak those things that are more specific for that platform. 
So a lot of people that might be thinking about writing a, a game might be going, well, I'm not a graphic designer. I'm not, I don't know how to do sounds. I don't know how to do animation. I'm just a, I'm just a coder. You know, how much does Unity help you with those types of things? Do you have to be able to be a graphic designer to build your backgrounds and your characters and that kind of thing? Or does it include a lot of stuff that you can just, you know, work with as, as a library? No, no, not at all. So Unity is great if you're just a, you know, general programmer because they have this thing called the Unity Asset Store. And so you can go on there and, you know, pretty much anyone can upload anything to the Unity Asset Store. And these things range from, you know, just little background images to, you know, more complex 3D models. You can even get like development tools to, you know, make your development processes a little bit easier. Uh, character controllers, anything like that. And so these assets are, some are free, some are paid. And so it's just really nice for you to, you know, kind of go on there, uh, browse for what you need, and, you know, you can import it to your project with a few clicks. So are you yourself mainly a, like in terms of games development, um, a programmer, or are you more of a designer, um, a sound person, or you do everything? Uh, Definitely programming is my strong suit. But, you know, being kind of like a solo developer, you kind of got to dip your toes in a bunch of different places. Mm. Now, is Unity a free product or do you have to pay for it? So, yeah, that's the nice thing about Unity. There is a free version and that gets you pretty much everything that you need. And then there are paid levels of Unity. And when you start making a certain amount of money on your game, then they, you know, force you to upgrade um, things of that nature. But as far as, you know, being able to just make a game with, you know, any of the features that you pretty much need, you can do that all for free. Oh, wow. That's good. So basically any of the, any of us can just get started today, you know, like. Yeah, absolutely. And is it a, because I mean, there's lots of other games engines out there. Like is Unity like fairly easy to learn, you think, compared to the others? I think so. I've been using it for quite a while. The interface I mean, pretty much makes sense when you learn it. It's it's pretty easy to follow. They have a lot of really good tutorials and documentation available. But yeah, it, it's very easy to use. And especially if you're familiar with C-sharp, you know, you can be up and running in no time. So everything in the game is just, just an object. You instantiate it and set methods and properties on it. Yeah. And, and so that's kind of like the traditional way to develop games in Unity with the, you know, object oriented design. Basically, you have game objects, and then those game objects have what are called components. And so every game object is going to have like a transform component. So it's going to have, you know, like a position in the world, and then you can add things on that, like uh, mesh renderers, so it can actually display some, some 3D mesh. Or you could have, you know, a sprite renderer, or you could add custom scripts on there to do, you know, all kinds of logic. So Unity will do both two D and three D, right? That's correct. Yeah, and they have kind of presets for like if you're making a two D game or a three D game. Is two D a lot easier than three D? They're pretty similar uh, as far as adding components. They have, you know, specific components made for two D games and three D games, but. It, it's pretty it's pretty straightforward either way you go. I, I wouldn't say one is easier than the other. Are there some popular games out there that the listeners might, might be familiar with that don't know that, hey, this is a Unity game? 
I don't know about ones that they might not know that would be a Unity game. I, I'm always quite surprised that sometimes when I play a game that you'll see at the beginning, there's like a made with Unity splash screen. And it's something that I'm starting to see more and more on games that I just kind of randomly download or whatever. Yeah, I think I see a lot of mobile games um, that have that, that splash screen. That splash screen is yeah, awesome. definitely free, right? Yeah, so you get that splash screen on the free version. Like if you have the free version of Unity, that splash screen will play before your game. So that's one of the plus features that in the paid version, you can turn that off if you want to. But I do see a lot of game developers still keep that on. So one thing I've always been curious about is like, because, you know, like like, like I said, I, I don't really have that much experience with games development. I'm more of a, a web developer. And I guess most web applications have a have a structure. You know, you have the you have a, a client and then you, you build your kind of your web endpoints and then you may have a I don't know, like a business logic section and then you might have a database or data layer and then a database. What, what how would you normally structure a a game solution? Typically with the object oriented programming, you know, you're gonna to want to separate everything into individual game objects. Uh, so you'd have, you know, a game object for like a game manager, and that can keep track of, you know, like what state the game is in, you know, if you detect player input. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Then, you know, you'd have different individual objects for um, a player or different enemies. And of course, you can have, you know, classes and they inherit all kinds of properties and things of that nature. Yeah, okay. And what, what would you normally use for a database? Would you just use like SQL Server or something? Or like, what would be the... Does it have its own data storage system built in? Yeah, most most of it I'd probably do just kind of within the engine itself. I have done, I was working on a multiplayer game a little while back, which I did make a, a SQL server. And again, that's one of the nice things about Unity is they have this like Unity web request class that can, you know, make web requests. And so you can you can use that to communicate with different scripts on the web and databases and things of that nature. So when you say you save it within the game itself, are you saying you're just storing it in memory, or and how how would it uh, how would you make it persistent? There's different like functions built into the the Unity library, and so using those you can save persistent data, and then that will save to you know the hard drive on the computer or you know, whatever, whatever persistent memory storage you have. Okay. So I've installed, say I've installed Unity and then I, you know, start a new project. What's kind of the first things I need to think about uh, either in the process or the structure of the game that I'm, that I want to write? I think if you're starting a new project and you have an idea for a game in mind, Honestly, the first thing you should start with is what is the player going to be interacting with? And how, do you, how are you going to build that feeling that you're achieving? And that's kind of like the hardest part. So that's the, something that you should really get right first. You know, kind of get that proof of concept. Make sure that the game idea that you have in mind is actually fun to play. So gameplay comes first before anything else. Absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah, my yeah. opinion. But yeah. So when you first make a game and you're just trying to get things to basically work, do you just put in some temporary graphics for your character and background and environment and then worry about doing that later once you got the gameplay settled down? 
Yeah. Yeah. At the beginning, you know, it's pretty much just going to be like gray boxes. And you can actually find pictures online of, you know, big AAA, super popular games when they were just kind of going through the testing phases. And they'll be showing off the levels within these gray boxes. And it's kind of cool to just see the, you know, player move around these levels in their very primitive forms. So I've got gameplay. What's the process of, you know, putting characters and involving that into into the gameplay and then figuring out, you know, I have some ideas and you have to do like collision detection and so things, things like that. How does that work within Unity? So that's where the components start to come into play. So kind of once you have your basic generic game object, then you can start adding in the specific components that you want. So, you know, colliders can, you know, detect collisions between different objects. You can use things called rigid bodies where you can apply physics to them. So if you want, you know, gravity applied to this object or if something knocks it to have it fly across the screen. And then, of course, you can add in all your custom components with custom behavior. And if you want to store any, you know, custom data like the player's health or, you know, hit points or yeah, anything like that. So you mentioned physics is is something is math something that you really need to know be strong with for Unity or does it really help you out with that? Depends on what you're trying to do. I'd say you can get away with accomplishing a lot without um, a strong knowledge in math, but there have been some things that it it is good to have kind of that three D the knowledge of three D math. What about AI? Would you use a lot of uh, AI in it? Because I'm just thinking like a, like a computer game where, you know, like a, like a soccer game or something. Would you have to kind of program how someone would, how, how, the, how the AI would go and get the ball and things like that? Or Yeah, yeah. So when you're making AI, you're typically just going to want to come up with some way to kind of keep track of the state of the AI. You know, maybe if it's just kind of in its general idle wandering around state. Or if something in the world happens that, you know, triggers the, the AI to, you know, do something like that. But yeah, I mean, you can make it as basic or as complex as you want, really. So are there any libraries, though, that would, that would assist you, I guess, in how to program a bad guy to, to function, you know, logically? <laughs> yeah, I think that's something where the Unity Asset Store could come into play. You can, you can find, you know, player controllers, AI controllers all kinds of things like that just on the on the Unity Asset Store. So would you normally start from scratch, you think? Because like, I guess I'm thinking like there's a lot of different types of games and I'd imagine how you'd program a, like a puzzle game like Candy Crush would be completely different to how you'd make um, like an Angry Birds game. Like, Would there be like a template you get when you're, when you're just starting off that, that's like the puzzle game template for Unity and you just... Yeah. Yeah. So again, that is one of the nice things about Unity is it's just very flexible. You can make, you know, all different kinds of games, whether it be uh, a puzzle game, a 2D platformer, a first person shooter, anything like that. But yeah, there there are some templates that Unity provides, kind of some basic packages that you can import into your project to get you up, up and running with, you know, some basic components that you'll need. And then again, I'll bring up the Unity Asset Store. People make all kinds of templates for different games that you can import into your project that have pre-built logic and even some graphical assets to get you started with that as well. 
So what's kind of the, the, the list of, you, know, you mentioned components quite a bit, but I mean, how many different components are there that, that makes up a game? And, you know, how do you use each one of those components? Give us, you know, some information about, you know, the structure and the capabilities for each one of the components. I don't know exactly how many components there are, but I mean, the, comic, the, the common ones are going to be uh, different renderers to you know, display a graphical image of the game object. Of course, colliders, rigid bodies. I'd say those are probably the most commonly used ones. And then outside of that, just creating your own custom components. So what's a, what's a collider do? You know, what, what's its capabilities? So with colliders, you can select if you want it to be maybe a box collider or a capsule collider. They can have kind of different shapes depending on your game object. And well, the box being, you know, the shape of when it detects that something has touched it or... Yeah. So, you know, maybe you have like a, a chest in a world and you can put a box collider around that. And then when you're playing the game, you can, you know, if you run into that box, it can detect that collision. And then maybe say when you collide into it, maybe pick up the item in the chest or uh, maybe nothing happens and it's just, you know, just kind of a box there and it doesn't let you go past it. So if you put Um, a box there and not a collider, then you would just walk right through it? Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every component that you want to interact with in the world is going to have to have a, a collider component. But you can also use colliders as what are called triggers. And so that would be like if you were to walk through a doorway, you could have a trigger in there, which wouldn't stop you, but you could pass through it. And then you could, you know, trigger some behavior like an enemy popping out from, you know, behind a wall or something like that. So I'm wondering, is um, performance ever really a consideration these days? Because, I mean, back in the olden days, probably not that long ago, but... um. Most most games were written in C plus plus, and but now you're saying that Unity is, is all in in C sharp. So you know, are there any performance things that you got we got to worry about, or is, is modern hardware strong enough that we don't really have to worry about it anymore? It it really depends on what you're making. For most kind of general basic games, performance isn't really that much of an issue. Yeah. But if you are making mobile games, you know, of course, you're going to run into uh, issues when, you know, you're putting a bunch of different objects on the screen and doing all kinds of physics calculations and things like that. But one of the nice things about Unity, and we can kind of start talking about this, is one of the newer features coming to it is called the Data-Oriented Technology Stack, which is just DOTS for short. Are you guys familiar with data-oriented programming or anything like that? No, I don't. I'm not familiar with the using of the term. You know, maybe I understand the concepts, but not the term. Okay, so it it basically separates all the components out. So it's a completely different paradigm from object oriented programming. And the main thing with the Unity dots is what's known as ECS or the Entity Component System. And so that contains is persists of three different things. You have entities, components, and systems. So entities are similar to a game object. They're basically just a representation of some object in the world, but it doesn't have any real data associated with it. Then you have components, which are basically just containers for data. So if you wanted you know, the health of the player or how many points this enemy is worth. Those are components that you could assign to those entities. And then separately from those things, you'd have systems. And systems are 
just kind of like the logical things, making players move around on the screen or, you know, how, how enemies react in certain situations. And so kind of separating everything out, you can get really good performance. And this allows you to have, you know, more objects on the screen and allows you to do more complex things on lower powered devices. So basically you're decoupling, like you're saying the entity is kind of like what the, I guess the shape of the, the, the object you're trying to create, the component is a, is a, I guess the, the data for the, for the object. And then the system is kind of like the brains. Would, would, you, would that be correct? Or? Yeah, sort of. But yeah, the entity, it doesn't have, it's not like the, the renderer or anything like that. It's basically just like this object, you know, exists in our world. And then components would be things that you'd add on to it, like renderers, so you could actually see the object in the game world. Have you heard of Atwood's Law? He says that anything that can be built in JavaScript eventually will be built in JavaScript, and that includes mobile apps. You can build awesome mobile apps and Apple TV and other apps with React Native. Come check us out every week as we talk about some of the ins and outs of building mobile apps with JavaScript and with React on React Native Radio. You can find it at reactnativeradio.com. And how does that improve um, performance? So one of the nice things about it is it, it basically just structures the memory in a certain way that everything can be accessed really quickly. And then using the systems how they are, it can basically just kind of iterate through everything that it needs to apply to just really quickly. So it doesn't have to be going to like random spots in memory. Everything is just everything's just structured really neatly in memory. In terms of this, this data-orientated technology stack, can you tell us more about the, the C-sharp job system that's also been introduced? Yeah, so the C-sharp job system is kind of like where multi-threading comes into play. And this, yeah, is only available for the data-oriented technology stack right now. And it's really simple to use. Pretty much anything in a system, you can either do a dot run, which will run it on the main thread, or you can yeah. do a dot schedule, which schedules it to run on a worker thread. So oh. if you're doing you know, a lot of complex things with a bunch of different objects on the screen, you can separate that out to run across many threads and get you know, really high performance out of your game. Oh, okay. I just actually just assume that most games development like would have just always used lots and lots of threads. Like, are you saying that this is a new thing to ND and that you you there wasn't really multi-threading previous to this new um, framework? Yeah, yeah. To my understanding, pretty much everything was just running on a single thread, and that that was kind of common for game development. And what about the burst compiler? That that's the last part of um the that this framework. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So yeah, the Burst compiler, I don't know exactly how that kind of works under the hood. These are all still things kind of in like a preview phase. So I'm just starting to play around with them myself. But as far as implementing it, it seems pretty straightforward. You pretty much just say, you know, you want to use the uh, Burst compiler. And again, it just leads to much better performance out of your game. So can I write the uh, next Flappy Bird and get rich? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we'll see. Up to you. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, something that, you know, everybody has to think about, you know, in most games, they're going to have enemies in the games. And so how do you how do you make, make those enemies smart? You know, and the various difficulty levels that you have, you know, you know, as being a computer, if you turned it up 
all the way, it would be a perfect shot for the enemies every time. But how do you kind of make that different levels of intelligence in your enemies? Right. That's that's one of the most the trickiest parts of game development is kind of figuring out that balance between the enemies being too good or too weak. And so you really just kind of got to experiment, play around with different values, kind of find that route, the right balance. But I think the most important part is really getting other people to play your game, um, especially play your game blind, people who've never seen or heard about your game before, and getting it in their hands and getting feedback from them and you know, seeing what parts they struggle with and uh, what things they like, what things they didn't like. What's the code like to make that your your enemies, you know, smart, you know? What's it take, you know, as far as writing code and, and algorithms to make your enemies? Like what what kinds of things do you mean? You know, I mean you, your your enemy has to know how to move within the game. So you gotta have some code there for movement and then it has to know, you know, like weapons capabilities that it might be carrying and you know how to search and find and identify where the player is at what's what's the code like to to do that so again with enemies i think the the biggest thing is to just kind of have different states that they're in so maybe there's just kind of like a a generic wandering state and then if the player triggers something in the world you know maybe they can evolve into another state where they kind of have an idea where the player might be so they might kind of start working towards that area And then you can kind of set up maybe a a collider or something on the enemy's face that is just kind of like a cone pointing outwards. And then if the the player kind of goes into that cone, then they see like, oh, I can see the player. Now I can start, you know, chasing him or shooting at him or whatever. So you can write code that kind of the brains of the enemy so it knows how far it can see and what's within that zone. Yes, yeah, exactly. And you could kind of apply that the sight range to a collider. And then so that would probably be the easiest way to um, like air quotes, see the player is if it that collider, the the sight collider collides with the player. Yeah, I mean, to me, it seems like the player is probably a lot easier because it's the, you know, the, the, the user is controlling the movements of the player and can see on the screen what he can see and what he can't see. But a bot is, you know, or whatever is just code. So, you know, what's it take to, to, I mean, does unity help you out with knowing that something is in between you and the bot and the bot can't see you or. Yeah. So yeah, I I definitely agree that creating the player is a lot easier, especially, you know, you're just pretty much taking in player movement and, or player input and translating that to movement on the player. And then, yeah, there are, there are a bunch of built-in functions. You can do things like raycasts. So if you want to do a raycast from the enemy to the player, maybe you can see that, oh, okay, I, I hit a wall. So a, a raycast is basically just going from uh, one single point to another point, or you can kind of do from one single point in a direction out to infinity. And then you can, it, it basically just, it, if it passes through a collider, it will return information about that collider. So you can see, oh, maybe there's a wall in the way. Uh, maybe there's another enemy in the way. Or, yeah, I did hit the player. So it's kind of like the, the, the eyes of the enemy. Is that right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So it's kind of like each entity, each enemy entity kind of has like a like a context object the way it can kind of grab information about the world it's in. Would that be a good way to describe how it would decide um, where to go and things like that? Yeah, yeah. So it's going to need, yeah, it's going to need some information about the world. Another nice thing that Unity provides that you can add to enemies would be, I'm trying to think of the name right now, but basically there's just kind of like a, a, a pathfinding system that allows the player to easily, or the enemies, I guess you could use it for the player too, but to walk around within the world, you know, circumnavigating different objects that are in, in the way. So uh, what kind of things have we not covered about, you know, building the games and writing the code and the capabilities within developing game within Unity? I don't know. Did you, did you have any specific about, questions? Um, about deployment, how would you, how would that normally work? You, you touched on like the, the kind of like the testing side things, getting people to play it and things like that. Typically, if you have to, if you say you wanted to deploy a game to iOS or Android, is it similar to just deploying an app? And would that, would that same thing be similar to something like PS4 and Xbox? How, how do you actually go and deploy a game once you've written it? Yeah, so I mean, it, it's kind of platform specific. So if you want to you know, build to PC, they'll basically just give you the, the raw files that you need. And then if you want, you can create like an EXE installer based off of those files. But then, yeah, if you wanted to make like an Android game, it would just spit out an APK and then you can install that on your device or you can, you know, distribute that however you'd want to, you know, upload it to the, the Play Store or anything like that. It, it gets a little bit more complicated for iOS. You have to be building, you actually have to build the game on a Mac and then from there you can, you know, upload it into the Apple development console um, yeah. And you can take advantage of things like test flight to deploy it to a bunch of test users. So that, that is kind of nice to have. What, what about consoles? Have you done any console stuff? Because I, I think that is one thing good about the Switch that they, they have a whole ton of like indie developers yeah. um, games on it now. Um, but what, do you know what the process is to, to get a game up there? As far as I understand, I have not done it myself, but as far as I understand, basically you just kind of need to contact Nintendo kind of make a proposal for some cool games that you have in mind for the Switch. And if they approve you, then you can purchase, I believe you have to purchase a development uh, development kit through them. So then mm. they'll send you a Nintendo Switch development kit and access to all the SDKs. And again, there is an option in Unity to deploy to Nintendo Switch. So you can just kind of click that and it yeah integrates with the SDKs somehow and you can deploy your game to the Switch. So do you think then that you'd have to write a lot of... Because you're saying that Unity can just um, compile to any any of these platforms, but some of these platforms are slightly different. Like a mobile game would be mainly about touchscreen, but a, a Switch game would be like mainly about, you know, there's different buttons um, that, that you have and there's also a touch element as well. Like do you find that when you write games for multiple platforms, you write a lot of platform-specific code? So it's not really platform-specific code, but you do have to keep in mind what you're developing for. So if you're developing for a keyboard or a controller or a touchscreen, you're going to want to take in input in different ways. So yeah, just it, it'd probably be best to keep that in mind at the beginning of development, You know what your end platform or platforms are going to be. 
So if you are developing for you know one specific platform, it's going to be easier to tune the input for that specific platform. Um, but if you are making a game that could be to several different platforms with different input types, then you kind of want to start maybe looking into maybe creating like an input manager that basically takes in uh, all different kinds of input and kind of translates that um, to work just like in one way with the game. How about uh, monetization in games? You know, what, what are some ways to, you know, make money and which ways kind of tend to work better than others? There are all kinds of ways to make money in games nowadays. And I mean, it, it really kind of comes down to the game you're making. What is the monetization strategy that works best for your game? So, of course, you can kind of do just traditionally sell the game for X dollars on, you know, a, a, a store like Steam or Epic Game Store or a console store or something like that. Of course, with mobile, you know, these free-to-play games are extremely popular and you can monetize through ads. So if you get, you know, a lot of installs on your game and you get a lot of people viewing your ads, you can make a pretty good amount of money. Of course, you can sell in-game items to you know, upgrade your, your player in your game. But again, that's something that you want to keep in mind at the beginning of development is how am I going to monetize this game? And that will influence some of the design decisions that you make about your game. So I guess publishing handles all the upgrade process. So if you, you've got fixes, bug fixes, or new features to release, that's all done through the publishing process? Yeah. So again, that's what's really nice about all the you know gaming platforms these days is they pretty much allow you to add in patches. And it's pretty much just as easy as you know uploading the new build of your game, writing some patch notes, and saying publish. So you mentioned before about game jams. Can you explain a little bit more about what that is? Yeah. So game jams... Game jams are awesome. They're definitely a great way to start getting into game development if, if it's something you kind of played around with a little bit before. But it's pretty much like a short period of time. Typically, it takes place over the course of a weekend. I usually do like 48-hour game jams where you pretty much just make an entire game from scratch within that 48-hour time period. It's like a hackathon, basically. Yeah, 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 basically. So, you know, at the beginning of the game jam, they'll give you a theme and then you kind of will build a game around the theme. And you're doing it with, like, are you programming by yourself or like with a whole bunch of other developers? It really depends on the game jam. The one that I usually participate in is called Ludum Dare. That's L-U-D-U-M-D-A-R-D-A-R-E. And... There's two sections of the game jam. So there's the 48-hour one, uh, which is called the compo. And that's kind of like the you know hard traditional mode of it. And so you have to do everything yourself within that time period. So um, it's only you. You can't have any outside help. And you have to program everything. You have to create all the graphics, all the audio, everything within the 48-hour period. But then they also have... I believe it's just called the jam, which is uh, 72 hours. So you get an extra day and you are allowed to use, you are allowed to collaborate with other people and you can use uh, certain assets that you've downloaded from the internet. And so it's, it's a little bit more flexible. Do you sleep or, um, during that time? Or are you <laughs> hours or like? Uh, I, I like to still try and get good sleep and, you know, exercise a little bit. I, I think it just keeps me a little bit more fresh. I haven't, 
tried to do like the whole 48 hours straight, I think I'd probably be a mess by the end of that. So I don't know if I want to try that. Camp there or like, do they, does everyone just go home at the end of the night or? So it, it's a online thing. So you just do it from your house. Yeah. Yeah. There are game jams. I think like the, the global game jam is one where they have different sites that you can drive out to and then you can kind of be working on a game. There's other different teams working on a game. So there, there's a bunch of different styles of these game jams. Yeah. I think Australia's got one called, it's not, it's not a game hackathon. It's more of just a hackathon. It's called Gov, Gov, Gov Hack. I've, I've, I did it a few years ago. It was really fun. It was basically like government releases a whole bunch of like data, like open source about you know, lots and lots of stuff, like the environment, you know, where the parks are, where the maps are, like lots and lots of data. And you're supposed to, like even 48 hours, just create like an idea that could benefit this community kind of thing. And it's just a really, it, it, it is a, it is a hackathon where you actually go there and you meet lots of, lots of people and you work together, but it's just a really good vibe. I think um, going to these hackathons, you know? Yeah, definitely. That sounds really interesting. It sounds very supportive, very similar to game jams. Like during the game jam, when it's going on, they have, uh, you know, forums and discord servers and, yeah. You know, everyone's posting, you know, kind of the progress that they've been making. And it's, yeah, just really, really cool and supportive. It's all positive vibes. Cool. Fantastic. So is game development something you think you have to go to school for to learn and get started? Or is there good resources out there for somebody that wants to be self-taught? I do not think, especially nowadays, that you need to go to school for game development. I mean, it really depends on the person. I think for me, going to college was a good idea because I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do or you know how to go about doing it. So it was kind of nice for me to kind of have like a, a little bit of a structured plan that I could follow. But if you want to be completely self-taught, there are tons and tons of resources available online. You know, people making tutorial videos. Of course, you have the official tutorials from Unity. They've even recently launched uh, something called Unity Learn, and that comes free with a a paid version of the Unity game engine. And they just have a bunch of good development resources on there to get you up and running with your first games. So if we kind of covered everything, that was really interesting. I think, you know, at least there's a good starting point for the listeners to get out there and, and discover Unity, understand that it's you know, it's writing in C-sharp, so it's a language that they're going to be familiar with. Mm. All they have to do is kind of learn the concepts and learn the processes for publishing, and then then they're off. So I guess we'll move on to picks, and I'll just let everybody know that if anybody wants to get a hold of me on Twitter, they can find me at .NET Superhero on Twitter. So reach out to me. Glad to answer any questions that I can do there. If people want to get a hold of you, Jonathan, where can they do that? So the best place would probably be my website, tmg.dev. And then there I'll have links to my YouTube channel, which is Turbo Makes Games. And so I, I put up a lot of Unity tutorials. So if you're interested in learning Unity, that'd be a great place to, to start. Okay, so check out your YouTube channel if people want to you know, get started. Have you thought about learning to do native iOS development? Are you using Swift at work? Or maybe you've considered writing applications for macOS. We have a podcast that covers all of that called iFreaks. We have a new panel and a lot of exciting things to talk about. So come check us out at ifreakshow.com. What kind of picks do you have for today? Why? So today, um, my pick is uh, it's actually a tool that I, I use regularly. It's called Balsamic. It's a, it's a wireframing tool. So 
it's really good if you're just wanting to build, if you wanted to like build a screen and you, you've got a client and you just want to quickly mock up what it should look like. So it's a little bit of feedback. It does it in kind of kind of cartoon-ish or like a style so that it looks very much like it's a, it's a prototype. And it's just very easy to use. Um, been using it for you know a number of years, kind of thing. And yeah, so I'll, I'll send. I'll put the link in the show notes. Okay, it's called balsamic. Balsamic, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think I've heard of that. So good. My pick today is I had the last pretty much two weeks off for Christmas and New Year's because where I work they kind of shut down mainly for those two weeks. So I end up watching a lot of shows. And the show I found kind of the most interesting during that time was The Witcher. It's on Netflix. So I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's, it's pretty interesting. Now, I think it's based on, on either some books or games or things like that. Yeah, it was originally a book series, and then they've made a, a game series about it. And so, yeah, now it's a TV series. Yeah. So I, I'm not familiar with the books or the games, so I can't really say what it how it relates and how good it matches there. But series on, on Netflix was, was really interesting. One thing I'll let people know is if they watch it, you kind of get confused for a little while because they actually have multiple timelines, but Mm. the way it's shot, you don't really know when they switch timelines. So you're watching this thing and then, then they'll cut to some other scene and it's like, wait a second. I thought that guy was dead. (laughs) (laughs) And then, and then you've kind of figure out what's going on is, Oh, they went back into the past. And it's like, oh, okay. Once you figure that out, then it's a little more understandable. But yeah, that threw me for a loop uh, so, the, first, <laughs> the first time they did that. So I have some friends who are like really, really obsessed with Witcher. And I was, I was saying they were watching the, the series and they weren't sure whether if someone who has no kind of background or about Witcher would understand it. Like, do you reckon, like, it sounds like that, that was you, wasn't it? And you were able to understand it eventually like yeah i understood it eventually you know i i, I like a lot of fantasy type yeah shows and games and things like that so i kind of understood some of those types of things but yeah the, the hardest thing to follow was the, those timelines because they don't say you know like two years bef- prior or whatever on the thing they just cut and it's like okay <laughs> this and then after a while you go oh this happened in the past but i was just watching you know, current stuff like five minutes ago. And it's like, oh, so I, I, I hope they do a better job at that in the future. Other, other than that, it was, it was very interesting. So Jonathan, what's your pick for today? All right. So of course I had to pick something gaming related. So my pick of the week is Awesome Games Done Quick, which is a charity event that they put on twice a year. So they'll do once kind of in the uh, like first couple of weeks of January. So that one's actually going on right now. And then they'll also do one during the summer. And so, yeah, I brought it up because it's, it's going on right now. It's a really awesome event that they do. Basically, it's a week long and they are speed running games 24-7. So they'll, they'll basically play a game from you know, start to finish or achieve different you know, goals and as quickly as possible. And it's just a really cool and entertaining event that it's just really interesting because they'll do good commentary on what they're doing in the games and, you know, how they're maybe glitching the games or doing certain skips to achieve the best time possible. So it's been real fun to watch. Is it like retro games like Mario Brothers and things like that? 
It's everything. So they'll they'll do yeah retro games like Mario Brothers, and they'll even do games that were re- released within the past year. So it's yeah a whole variety, and you'll get like really you know weird obscure games that you've never heard of. But there's you know a community of people who love speed running this game, and you know mm-hmm. they'll play it over and over and over again to you know find all the the cool tricks. And yeah, it, it's just a really a really fascinating thing to me. Yeah, cool. Is there a website for that? I think it's just agdq.com for awesome games done quick. But yeah, it if you just search for awesome games done quick, you'll find that no problem. The okay. last couple of years they've been, you know, raising like several million dollars for charity, so it's it's pretty impressive what they accomplish. Okay, cuz we want to make sure to put a link in the show notes in case anybody finds it wants to find it later. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, it'll probably be over by the time this goes out, but they put all the the replays of all the speed runs on YouTube. Okay, great. Well, I think that uh, covers everything for today. Thanks, Jonathan, for spending time with us and telling us about Unity and game development and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to hang out and talk games for a little bit. I agree. So, all right. Well, thanks, everybody. And we'll see everybody on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. Uh, See ya. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.